Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41 say this. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray together. Father, we have been studying throughout the book of Mark. Who is this man? Who is this Jesus? Who is this one that teaches with authority? Who is this one that commands unclean spirits? And who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him. God, I pray that as we dive into your word today, that we would hear your voice speaking to us and that we, like the wind and the waves, would simply respond to the command of our king, our king whose voice uh, is not the voice of a tyrant, Lord, but our King who loves and serves and sacrifices and desires his people to be at peace. God, would you wash over us with a stillness today as we hear from your word. Holy Spirit, be present. Teach us all things. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I was talking to a friend recently about his first encounter with a great white shark while diving off the coast. And as he was sharing, he said, you hear all the time fishermen and divers and surfers say that they just are at home in the water. And he said, the first thought that went through my head when I saw that shark was, this is not my home. I do not belong in this place. And that thought echoes the majority opinion concerning the ocean since the beginning of humanity. Throughout scripture and throughout the ancient world, the sea has been a continual picture of chaos and darkness and death. This picture of the sea as a place of chaos is seen in the very first picture in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, the waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Prior to the formation of dry land, the world is said to be without form and void. It was dark and covered in water, the deep. Now, a place covered in water that is dark and, 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 and chaotic, that's not a place that humans can live. This phrase, formless and void, is actually really interesting. In, in Hebrew, it's poetic. 
The, the phrase in Hebrew is tohu vavohu. It, it, it rhymes, and it's this, it's this poetic expression that formless and void doesn't really capture. There's actually another um, a, a, a translation by another theologian that says a better understanding is that it's wild and waste. Tohu vavohu. It's wild and waste. It is, it's wild. It's chaotic and yet empty. It's not a place where humans can live yet, but the Spirit of God is there. And where the Spirit of God is, there is hope. And so God brings order to the chaos, and he fills what was empty with abundance. And so he, he speaks and he parts the waters so that dry land can emerge. And he fills what was void with all kinds of life and abundance so that the earth is no longer tohu vavohu. It's no longer wild and waste. There's order and there's abundance. And so that's what God does in creation where there was chaos and emptiness. He creates order and he fills it with life. But there are still boundaries to that order. And as far as people were concerned in the ancient uh, people groups, the, the ocean was beyond the boundaries. The ocean, the sea was out of bounds for humanity. Now, I know that those of you who love to surf are totally disagreeing with me right now, and that's fine. Here's why you disagree. Because you have actually learned how to rule and subdue the ocean by literally riding on top of the chaos. (laughs) Surfing might be one of the greatest examples of humanity doing what it was called to do. You have turned chaos into your playground. It's it's, it's amazing. The idea of surfing to the ancients would be It'd be insanity. Throughout Scripture, the ancient world has seen the sea as a place of chaos and darkness and death. And so even though humanities have been able to leverage the waves, even though they've been able to harness the power of the sea, only God has the ability to silence the chaotic waters. And it's it's, it's God's authority over the sea that is praised throughout Scripture. Psalm 29 says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Psalm 89.9 says, You rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And perhaps one of the greatest, most relevant biblical examples of God's authority over the sea is a story that shares many parallels with our text. Jonah was running from God. Jonah had been called by God to go to Nineveh to preach to his enemies. And Jonah said, nope, not me. And so he jumps on a ship. And he goes as far from Nineveh as possible. He jumps on a ship going the complete opposite direction. And while he's on the ship, he goes down below and he falls asleep. And a great storm arises, so much so that the crew is panicking. The crew is fearing for their life. They're dumping cargo. it's, It's pandemonium on deck and Jonah is asleep. And so they start crying out to all of their different gods, trying to find someone who can calm the storm. 
And they go down below deck and they find Jonah sleeping. And they say, Jonah, wake up. Pray to your God. Pray and ask him to make this stop. And Jonah says, I'm, I'm the problem. God has sent this storm because I've been running from him. I've been rebelling against him. And so here's what you need to do. You need to throw me into the water and the storm will stop. And so they're like, (laughs) get out. As soon as he hits the water, scripture says in Jonah 1.15 that the sea ceased from its raging. God had brought the storm and God had silenced the storm. And so like Jonah and the crew, Jesus and his disciples find themselves in some chaotic waters, in a crazy storm. Jesus had just been teaching from the boat, from the shore. Remember, the boat was crowd control. It allowed Jesus to separate himself from the crowd and, and, and to not get pressed and crushed by them. So he's been standing on a boat in the sun all day long. And it's getting late. And so he decides to push off and go to the other side of the sea. It's about a five-mile voyage. Now, the Sea of Galilee is, let me get this right, 696 feet below sea level and in the middle of a valley. And so frequently, warm air and cold air would mix and the Sea of Galilee was subject to violent winds, to crazy winds on the the sea. And so they were quite common. These storms were quite common and they could be extremely severe. And so they find themselves in a particularly terrifying storm. Now, it's important to note that the disciples are not overreacting to this storm on the sea. The storm on the sea is a real threat. Some have looked at this and gone, they've seen Jesus' response to them. Like, why are you so afraid? And they've, they've interpreted that somewhat as Jesus saying like, hey, quit your whining. It's really not that bad. But that's not what is happening here. The storm is a legitimate threat to their safety. And think about it. Many of the disciples are lifelong fishermen. Many of the disciples have incredible experience on the sea, including Peter, who was the eyewitness account, most believe that Peter was the eyewitness account, the source of Mark's gospel. And I think it's interesting that Mark's gospel says that they, referring to the disciples, were fearful and woke Jesus up and said it was they, right? Peter might say, some of the disciples were kind of freaking out about this, but you know, me and Andrew and James and John, like we were good. No, Peter, the eyewitness source goes, this was a gnarly storm. We were panicking. We were fearing for our lives. And so they come to Jesus and they say, don't you care that we are perishing? They're, they're losing heart. They're in despair for their lives. That is a testimony to the severity of the storm. This is a legitimate storm, and it's a legitimate threat to life. One of the most important things about the fear that you and I experience is that we recognize it and are honest about it. 
If there is something in life that we are fearful of, if there is something in life that is a threat to our safety, if there is something in life that is harming us or causing pain, inflicting pain, it's important that we recognize it, that we call it what it is, and we're honest about it. See, our emotions are given to us by God so that we can process a broken world. And fear is one of those emotions. And fear has been given to us as a gift from God because it will save your life someday. If there are, th- there are things in this world that if you were not afraid of, it would be the end of you. And so God has given us the ability to fear the danger and the brokenness in the world. And so we recognize it and we are honest about it. But we can often be so ashamed of our fear that we don't talk about it. See, we have this desire to be brave. We have this desire to be courageous. And so sometimes we can be ashamed of our fear. But fear is nothing to be ashamed of. Courage is not actually the absence of fear. We think that sometimes, that I'm afraid, oh my goodness, I'm a coward. No, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is recognizing the fear, not letting it rule you, and continuing to do what is right regardless of the cost. Courage is acknowledging the fear. It's not freedom from the fear. Uh, on On the flip side of that, cowardice is not being afraid. Cowardice is letting the fear rule you and actually causing you to operate outside of character or operate outside of the the way that God has made you or called you and to respond in self-preservation rather than responding in the way God himself would respond. And no matter what threats, no matter what storms you're facing, it's important to recognize that God does not minimize them. If we're afraid of something and we're honest about it and we acknowledge it to God, God doesn't minimize it. He doesn't ridicule you for it. He doesn't say that you're overreacting. God doesn't come and say, don't be afraid. It could be so much worse. Right? Sometimes we try to look for perspective, right? We try to find perspective, and sometimes a little perspective can be helpful. But when you're in the middle of a crisis and you don't know how it's going to turn out, someone coming to you and saying, it could be worse, has that ever been helpful? No, in the moment, like, it doesn't stop the pain. It doesn't stop the storm. It doesn't eliminate the threat. It's like, oh, okay, but this is still awful. God doesn't, doesn't minimize it or explain it away. In fact, sometimes it's the attempt to find perspective that prevents many people from actually acknowledging or voicing their need. How many times have you found yourself in a situation where you're in need? Whether that's financially or whether that's uh, you need comfort, encouragement, uh, whatever that is, you just need, you need someone to be there with you, to cry with you, whatever, whatever it may be. How many times have you been in a situation where you were in need and you thought about somebody else who had it worse than you and so you did nothing about your own need? Maybe that's, maybe that's never happened to you. That's happened to me. I know it's happened to some of us. And so I want you to think, what threat are you experiencing in life today? What danger are you in? What concerns keep you up at night? What is it that you are afraid of? 
It's not appropriate to treat them like they don't exist just because it could be worse. The storm that the disciples are in is a legitimate storm. It's a legitimate threat. If they were scrambling around on deck and James and John are like, me and our father Zebedee, we've seen worse. Shut up, James and John, like batten down the hatches. We need to acknowledge the situation that we're in and acknowledge the difficulty that it is. We need to take it seriously, not compare our suffering to another. If we take, we, we take our pain, we take our struggles, we take the storm seriously because God takes it seriously. God takes your situation seriously. He takes your suffering seriously. He takes your predicament and your pain seriously. And so the disciples are taking the storm seriously. They're terrified. If the fishermen are freaking out, imagine how the other disciples are doing who aren't regularly on a boat. And by the way, swimming was not a recreational activity in the first century Jewish world. To fall in the water was certain death. They are freaking out. And so this contrast, we see this contrast. Jesus is sleeping on a pillow and the disciples are in full pandemonium. And this contrast between Jesus and the disciples is huge. It's in the comparison of the sheer panic and the perfect peace that we understand that the real threat to the disciples, not diminishing the storm, but there is another threat, a deeper threat, a more violent threat to the disciples. It's not the storm on the sea. It's the storm in their hearts. See, our hearts act as little storm amplifiers. We constantly carry around with us concerns and fears and stress and insecurities in life. And these little micro storms in our hearts extend, uh, accentuate the external threat so that inside we're terrified. It's a legitimate storm. It's a legitimate fear, but because it resonates with these fears that we constantly carry around in us, the waves are so much higher, the waves are so much bigger, and the threat is so much more terrifying. And so the disciples' experience on the boat, their experience actually represents two of the most foundational fears in the human experience. The first fear is the fear of death. Socrates actually said that the fear of death pervaded the human experience to such a degree that a philosopher has no business talking about anything else. He said that a a philosopher should primarily and, and really only focus on addressing the fear of death because it is so rampant in the human experience. Death is the ultimate bummer of the human existence, right? No matter who you are. Regardless of who you are, it's the one thing that all of us are guaranteed to experience. And some may, may have the means to fight it off a little longer, but it is coming for all of us. It is. Death is, the fear of death is this experience that the disciples have on the boat that is shared throughout humanity. The second fear that gives rise to the storms in our hearts is the same experience that the disciples have. It's the fear that God doesn't care right? I'm going to die and nobody cares. Those, those fears, those fears of isolation in our need, those fears of, of, of death and not even God himself caring, caring about us are these little storms in our heart that accentuate everything that we experience. And so they come to Jesus and they say, don't you care that we're perishing? 
And this second fear, the fear that, that God doesn't care, is actually perpetuated by even well-meaning believers today. See, there's a lie that is rampant throughout churches. And it's not new. It's actually an ancient lie. It's a lie that begins by pitting our spiritual life against our physical life. It says that God cares about your spirit. God cares about your soul. God cares about your heart. But he doesn't care about your physical, mental, or emotional life. And the only reason that God will intervene in your physical, mental, and emotional life is if it will serve your spiritual life. Think about this. You have heard this before. How many times have you been in a conversation with somebody about your week and you're sharing with them your struggles and they go, but how's your soul? Yeah, 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 I hear all that. How's your relationship with Jesus? Right? It's not a bad question to ask. It's not. It's a good question to ask. God cares about your spiritual life. You should care about one another's spiritual life. But not if it completely separates it from your physical, mental, and emotional life and treats you like only part of a person. Right? And so we can do this all the time. And it completely ignores the entire ministry of Jesus. His ministry is an accusation against this kind of thinking. He has compassion and he heals and he rescues people from all that afflicts them. Not solely for their spiritual growth, but because he's the king of the kingdom of God who has invaded this present kingdom of sin and darkness and death and he is setting right what has been corrupted by Satan. He cares about the physical world. He cares about your body. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, 22 through 24. For we know that the whole creation, the physical world, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. It is in the hope of the redemption, not only of our souls. It is in hope of redemption, not only of our spirit. It is in the hope of redemption of our bodies that Paul says we were saved. God cares about your body. He cares about the physical world. He cares about you, soul, body, spirit, mind, all of these things. He cares about you. You are a whole person that he has made and that he loves. And he cares how you are suffering as a whole person. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is a loud cry into this world that, that the physical world matters, that your body matters, that what you do with your body or another person's body matters, that the harm that has been caused to your body matters. Our physical lives and our spiritual lives and our emotional lives are your life, singular, all together. God loves you. He created you. All of it was made good. All of it is fallen. It's not to be separated. It's to be taken together. And so God cares earnestly for who you are. And he cares earnestly about what you experience. And the disciples' fear of the storm was a big deal. 
The storm was a massive problem, but it was not the biggest problem. See, their error, the reason that Jesus says, why are you so afraid, is not because they're uh, afraid, because their, their fear of the storm was inappropriate. It's their error was in accusing Jesus of not caring. They'd seen him care for those who were not facing immediate threat of death. And so how much more does he care for those in the most severe of circumstances? In fact, he cares so deeply that he provides and protects even when we are not aware of the trouble that we're in. I read a story this week about a man named Ira Sankey. Now, Ira Sankey lived through the turn of the century and he's most known for being the music ministry leader and, and evangelistic companion of, of theologian and evangelist D.L. Moody. Some of you might be more familiar with that name. They had run these evangelistic crusades all over the world and had gained pretty like famous notoriety in their lifetime. And so one day, Ira Sankey is on a steamboat. And it's this dark, moonlit night, and and people on the boat know who he is, and they know that he's got a beautiful voice. And so they ask Ira, will you sing for us? And so it's near Christmas, and so Ira had planned to sing a Christmas song. But in the moment, he felt compelled to sing a particular hymn, a very particular hymn. And so he sings this song, and when he's finished, a man kind of steps out of the shadows on this moonlit night and asks Ira, says, did you happen to serve in the Union Army during the Civil War? And Ira says, I did. And he said, this is crazy, but do you happen to remember this particular uh, moonlit night? Were you, did you happen to, to, to be serving as a watchman on this night? in the Union Army? And, and Ira, surprised, goes, uh, yes, I was. And he says, as was I, but I was serving with the Confederate Army. And while you were illuminated by the full moon, I was in the shadows. I was in the bushes. And I drew my musket and took aim. And you began to sing that exact song. And I thought to myself, I'll let him finish his song and then I'll shoot him. And during the song, this man was reminded of his childhood and how his mother sang him this song. And he got to the end of the song and he told Ira, he said, he said, I said to God in that moment, if God is able to save this man from certain death, he must be powerful and mighty. He said, my arm fell limp at my side and I walked away. God cares so deeply for his people that he protects us from dangers we didn't even know we were in. What are you facing? What are you experiencing in life? There's nothing that ever has or ever will threaten you that God is not aware of and that God does not care about. And it's for this reason that we can sleep in peace as Jesus does. Jesus sleeps not because the storm is mild. He sleeps not because he doesn't care. It's because he trusts God with every ounce of his being, even though it would eventually cost him his life. Though the storm rages outside the boat, inside his heart 
is absolutely full of peace because he trusts God perfectly. And this is a reminder for us that as we study scripture and as we look at Jesus' ministry and his relationship with the disciples, Jesus is always the perfect example of discipleship. Oftentimes his disciples will get it wrong. But Jesus is our model for what it looks like to follow God and to trust God perfectly. You see, the real storm, the real danger that the disciples are battling and the battle that we face on a daily basis is not the, 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 the struggles of the world. It's not the, the things mounting up against us. It's not even our fear of death or our fear that nobody cares The real struggle is the struggle to believe. The real struggle is the struggle to trust. The struggle to trust God, not only in the storms, but in fair weather also. This doesn't minimize or rationalize the real threats that you or those you love experience right now. They're legitimate concerns. But we do need to recognize that when combined with a lack of faith, it creates a perfect storm. It creates this perfect storm that feels completely insurmountable. Those little storm amplifiers in our hearts start stirring up the already chaotic waters because we've lost sight of the God in whom we trust. Now these have been difficult times. These have been scary times. We've weathered incredible difficulty as a nation. We've endured hardship and brokenness as a church. Many are still grieving of what's been lost and many are fearful of what's to come. There have been plenty of opportunities to wonder whether or not God even cares. That's something that we hear all the time in people who experience 2020 and they said, I'm done. If, if God would allow this to happen, what are we even doing? There are plenty of opportunities to wonder, does God actually care? Does God even care what you are, about what you are experiencing? And then take into consideration our individual experiences, concerns about health and loss of loved ones and financial fears and frustrations at work and broken relationships and broken marriages and broken families, fears concerning the world and that our children and grandchildren are going to inherit and be forced to endure. All of these things are legitimate concerns and Jesus doesn't rebuke us for acknowledging the storm. Jesus is not mad at you when you say, God, what is this? This is so scary. I'm so afraid. He invites us to bring to him our fears in faith. He cares and he's not afraid and he's able to calm all of the storms in the world, in our hearts, and in our faith. He is able to calm the sea. He's able to calm our hearts and he is able to calm our souls with a word. Jesus can calm the storm. He rebukes the wind. He rebukes the sea and says to the wind, peace, be still. This command is to, be, to be still is literally be muzzled. It's the same word he says to the unclean spirits when he casts them out and commands silence. 
It's his authoritative rule as the king of creation, as the Lord of nature, Lord of the sea, Lord of the spirits, Lord of all, that he says, be muzzled, be still, no more out of you. And he calms it, tells it to be silent. Jesus is the master of the storm. And by rebuking the wind and stilling the sea, he, he, he eliminates, he vanquishes the storm, not only on the waters, but the storm in our hearts. And yet it gives rise to an entirely new fear. These disciples are in the presence of a man who wields the power of God. If we're afraid of some wind the one who commands the wind is someone to stand in awe of. It literally says, Jesus, uh, uh, after he calms the storm, it says that they feared a great fear because they were in the presence of a man who wields the power of God, the same voice that called light out of darkness, that, that, that ordered the chaos in the beginning, the same God who with a word parted the waters at creation so that life could flourish on the earth. The creator himself was in the boat. So they say, what kind of man is this? What kind of man is also God? All of us need to ask this question before leaving today. What kind of man is Jesus? What kind of man is also Lord The same man, Jesus, is the God who formed humanity from the dust of the earth and breathed life into them. He made our hearts to trust him. And though chaos will continue to attempt to reign in our lives and in the world, Jesus speaks peace to our hearts. He speaks peace to our souls. And when Jesus speaks peace over us, will we continue to fear? Will we continue to try to control that which we cannot control? Or will we just simply stand in awe of the one who told us to be still? The disciples stop in their tracks and recognize that Jesus was and is God. Now we live in an anxious world. We live in a fearful world and any peace that we have in life comes through faith. Any peace that you have comes through faith. If money brings you peace, it's because you believe it's actually going to be worth something tomorrow, which might take a lot of faith right now. If your family, your loved ones, your friends bring you peace, your social circles, your career, whatever that is, brings you peace, it's because you have faith that it's actually going to be there for you when you wake up. Whatever brings peace in life, if it is not Jesus, then it is a false peace. It may feel like peace for a moment, but when that thing is gone, then our worlds crumble. There's nothing that we have today that is guaranteed to be there for us tomorrow. And if these things are threatened by the the storms of life, those little amplifiers in our hearts come alive and they get cranked up to 11 because we know that they can't save us. We know that as comfortable as these things can make us, money, love, power, health are all false saviors and can't even guarantee protection in life, much less the life to come. And so our boats are sinking and we're trying to bail water with like thimbles, 
trying to save our ship, trying to save ourselves from sinking. But these idols, these, these, these false pieces that we carry with us cannot actually save us from the real threat. But Jesus can, and Jesus cares, and he speaks peace over our souls. He calms the wind. He calms the sea. He calms the storms in the world. He calms the storms in our hearts, and he's put an end to the chaos that rages against us. The reason that we are anxious is because we're failing to believe. The reason that we're fearful is because we're not trusting that Jesus has already silenced the greatest storm that we can ever face. You see, the the greatest storm that you will experience as a human being is the storm that sin, Satan, and death have been waging against us from the fall in the Garden of Eden. Sin is this chaotic sea that rages in the world against us, and we can't even tame the sin in our own hearts. The best we can do is redirect it. The best we can do is turn our licentiousness into self-righteousness. The best we can do about the addiction in our lives is get rid of that one and roll it into another addiction. We can only modify our behavior, but we can never calm the storm of sin. Sin has also corrupted the world that we live in. We live in danger of disease and disaster and death. And the best we can do is avoid it. The best we can do is throw money at it. But even so, death is always on the horizon. And so sin is the greatest threat to humanity. Sin is the greatest threat to the world. And death is a real enemy. And we all, like helpless fishermen on a boat in the middle of a hurricane, but Jesus is in the boat. Ultimately, Jesus will answer the disciples' accusation. The the accusation, they come to him, they wake him up, and they say, do you not even care that we are perishing? Ultimately, Jesus will answer that question, not on the boat, but on the cross. In taking on flesh, Jesus stepped into our world. He stepped into our plight. He stepped into the storm of sin. On the cross of Jesus is the place where all of our fears are put to rest. The question, God, do you care? Look at the cross. That's how much Jesus cares. That's how much God cares the struggle that you experience in life, does God even care, is answered on the cross. Jesus proves once and for all that he does. By being punished for our sin, he shows how much he cares and what he was willing to suffer to set us free. And then in his resurrection, we can finally live apart from the fear of death. Because though he died, he rose again and promises that anyone who believes will also be raised to new life. The power, the, the, the powers from the storm amplifiers in our, our hearts are finally put to rest. We no longer have to fear whether or not we are going to die. We no longer have to fear whether or not God cares about our suffering. He does. And we look to the cross. God cares and God has given us life. And he brings peace to us through that. No longer those storm amplifiers are vanquished. And we can look at the experiences in the world at face value, acknowledge them for what they are, but we don't need the panic. We don't need to lose hope. We don't need to lose heart. He brings peace to all who believe. And so we can sleep in peace regardless of what life brings. 
Because God cares and he's given us life and he's given us life abundantly and he's given us life eternally. It's only through faith in Jesus, church. Faith that he is Lord, that he loves us, that the storms in our heart and the storms in this world will be put to rest because God has declared peace over his people and he has made peace by the blood of his cross. Listen to the words that the Lord Jesus speaks over us today. I want you to think about whatever storm you're battling. I want you to think about whatever you're experiencing in life, whatever you're experiencing, whatever threatens you, your struggles in faith, and hear his words to you today. Peace. Be still. The wind and the waves obey him. Will we? Will I? Let's obey him. Let's trust him. Let's recognize that what he has done, he has done for you. That what he has done, he has done to bring you peace. And let's let our hearts be still and do as the scriptures say, to be still and to know that he is God. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are so thankful that we no longer need to fear the worst that sin, Satan, and death can throw at us. God, we can acknowledge the storms in life, look them dead in the face, and and call them what they are. Problems, difficulty, trials, fears, suffering, we can look at them and, 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 and treat them really as they are. Lord, we thank you that you don't diminish them. You don't minimize them. You don't explain them away. They are problems. They are important. But God, we can look at them and not panic. Because we know that in faith, though we die, we live. And we know in faith that what we experience, you care about. You're not afraid, but you care. So God, I know that there are brothers and sisters in this room who've gone through a lot. God, I know that there's fears in marriage know that there's fears of sickness and death. God, I know that there is disease, cancer, loss. But I know that there's fears for the, the world that our, our children are going to inherit, our grandchildren are going to inherit. There's fears of this world that we are going to inherit in our lifetime. God, we can look at those things and and, and recognize that they're issues and also not lose heart because you are the king of the kingdom that has made this world and is invading this world and setting the captives free. Lord, we ask that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God, I pray that you would calm the storms where there is illness, that you would heal in Jesus' name. 
God, when there, where there's brokenness in relationships and marriages and families, that you would bring unity and reconciliation in Jesus' name. God, all of the fears and, and difficulty and suffering that we experience, Lord, that you would vanquish it in Jesus' name. But most importantly, Lord, would you vanquish our unbelief? God, we believe. Help our unbelief. God, if there be anyone here who does not yet know you, Lord, we ask that as they wrestle with the words of your scripture, Lord, that you would not let them avoid wrestling with the question, what sort of man is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. And if they obey, so shall I. God, I pray that you would call people to faith today. Call me to faith today, Lord. A greater faith in the one who commands the wind and the sea. We love you, Lord, and we pray that you would do all of these things for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.